We are continuing our study of Ephesians, and we're going to close out the doxology in chapter 1 today. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. We brought back the whiteboard. Um, so <laughs> there's some quiet yays. Um, John will read for us, and then uh, we'll dive into it, see what the Lord has for us today. Okay, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for, for the inheritance that you've given us. We ask, Lord, that as we um, go through this life, and as Lawrence said, we are but a blip, but Father, you know all of these blips, and you've put them together, and you call us your children. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Please help us to hear your word, give, um, give Jonathan the words, and help us to not only learn more about you today, but live for you tomorrow and the next day and the next day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, so God's glory equals our good. It's the big idea from the text, and it made me think of the question this week, what is the most important thing about you? And we talked about it before. If you've been around me very long, I was tired of the usual greetings in D.C. of like, oh, what do you do? Or who do you work for? And I thought it'd be tremendously clever if I would just ask a deeper question of those that I was making an acquaintance with, right? And so I'd start asking, what's the most important thing about you, right? Sometimes I'd go to Christians and be like, what's your secret sin? I still do that. And nobody has ever told me, by the way. So get with it. Tell me your secret sin so I can pray with you. Uh, but that question of what is the most important thing about you is usually when I would ask it at these parties, it would be met with blank stares. Like people would be like, what? What did you just say? Right? And uh, occasionally someone would respond to that question with what they did or who they worked for. So kind of missing the point of my question, but so used to giving that type of answer, that's what would come. But then some people, after a little bit of a pause, would actually respond with things that were far more meaningful than title or position, right? I remember one time somebody said he was a good brother. Another person said they were a persistent optimist, which is a really good thing to be, right? At least be hopeful. All you realists could use a dose of it, right? And of course... I would rib Christians if they would respond in any way other than saying, I belong to Jesus, right? Because it's like, that's not the most important thing about you. You are a blood-bought, redeemed person of Christ, right? And so as I studied this week, it struck me that every time we gather, even in this iteration of the church that we call Reservoir in this family of believers, when we gather for worship on Sundays or when we gather in our homes on Tuesdays for small groups, we are giving an answer to that question about what is the most important thing about us. We are in these moments making claims on our identity, of value, of our things that we prioritize. 
And it leaves us increasingly able to say that Jesus is the most important thing about me. If that question was to come to us, our answer should be and absolutely is that I am in Christ. And Ephesians essentially is just a declaration of Paul to the church of what life in Christ, united, bound to him, actually looks like. And this letter provides that anchoring truth and then a way of life to live in light of it. And we've been digesting this meal very slowly, just been taking it bite by bite and consuming it so that we can savor every truth and hopefully be transformed by it when we hear it, when we believe it. And today in the conclusion of the doxology, this worshipful opening of the letter to the church, we recognize that God's glory equals our good. And all that comes before builds to these verses that John read this morning. The truth that in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen by God. We are made holy and blameless before him. We are predestined for adoption as children of God. We are redeemed. We are rescued from sin by the blood of Jesus. And we have been made part of God's good purpose to unite all things in Christ. Like that's a phenomenal resume. This is your CV as somebody that is in Christ. This is who you are, all these things that have come before. And that's the gospel proclaimed and believed by us in the redeeming work of Jesus unfolding before us. This is who we are in Christ, where humanity was kicked out of the garden because of sin. The redemptive story of Scripture and of Jesus is how the garden now, the place of peace, of flourishing, of communion with God, is actually invading the world, bringing life to that which was once dead. John Economides challenged me last week. He says, you're always talking about going back to the garden. Maybe you should shift that up. And I was like, fine, the garden is coming to us in Jesus. It's coming for us and giving life. And so that's the picture we have. The, that's supposed to be a garden. Beautiful flowers and fruit. That's a pear. You and drew the pear and orange. We've got a palm tree, a river. We needed a river. We probably needed two, though. Do you know the two rivers? What this to be? Who's been teaching you children in this street? Okay, fine. Whatever. I'm not, I need to stop asking my own children questions during sermon. Right? So all of this, this now invasion of the garden, this life in Christ, this blessedness that we experience in him, all of it, Paul tells us, is for the praise of his glory. So we think of glory, it's just high renown or honor won by notable achievements, right? It's essentially God's fame, the ultimate influencer of all of history, the main character of every story who doesn't just want you to know him, but knows you and desires for you to be known in relationship to him. It's he that is glorified. So we want to think this morning how his glory is good. And in our text, it's the truth that his glory provides for us unity, sealing, and eternity. So first we talk about unity. So here we have the first parents that are outside of the garden. And so we're going to see some other people. 
that are not gendered. Um, we'll give her hair. That'll, that'll gender her. There you go. <laughs> I'll get in trouble. You don't email me anyway, so it's okay. I can say what I want. So we have to understand in the text that maybe you didn't notice it, but it's there. There's actually two groups of people that Paul is talking about in verses 11 through 14. There's those that are originally out of the garden and those that would come later, essentially. But it's those that Paul says, we have obtained. And then a second group where he says, and you also. And so Paul, in this moment, in the doxology, is speaking first of Jews, those that are God's people who he chose to showcase life with him to the world. And then the second group, those you also are the Gentiles, those that are apart from Israel, those that are not in the lineage of Abraham, and they're all brought together in Christ. So there is this now unity where there was once separation. This is part of the worship song that begins in Ephesians. And Paul's going to build the case more in the second chapter of this letter. But this follows right after the promise of verse 10. We talked about last week, right? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So reconciliation immediately in Christ, we see it in the very next verse, in verse 11 and onward. And this is the expansiveness of the redemptive plan and who it's for unfolding before us in a doxology that's to be sung and cherished by the church. We hear the likes of it in Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These are the two groups that are at work in our text today, that you are predestined to hope in Christ. And there are both faithful Jews that are now joined to Gentiles who believe in Jesus. This is a converging of all of redemptive history the old testament or the old covenant and the new covenant coming together into one humanity in jesus this is why we can read all the stories of israel and claim them for ourselves because we have been brought in in christ and it's now all of our story together the apostle peter in one of his letters will say concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Israel was meant all along to hope in Christ, in the Messiah, the ancient of days that would come, the anointed one. Because we have hope in him. We are united with all those that have gone before, the remnant of every age experiencing unity. So ancestry no longer determines redemption, but all that are in Christ are united as one. And one scholar, uh, Alexander McLaren, says it so eloquently about the division that we don't quite even understand in our day. He says, when these words were spoken, the then known civilized world was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation, like the crevices in 
or crevasses in a glacier, right? He's a British guy. By the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface today. Language, religion, national animosities, differences of condition, and saddest of all, differences of sects split the world up into alien fragments. A quote-unquote stranger and quote-unquote enemy were expressed in one language by the same word. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and the master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulfs, flinging hostility across at each other. And then the benefits of the gospel came. Then the barbarian, the Scythian, the bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus, and they were ready to break all bonds that had separated them before. Because of God and his glorious grace, we are his. Those once far apart are now made family in Jesus, predestined to be family, to be his. It's the garden invading human relationships, restoring what was broken among us and making those who believe in him heirs with Christ was not just like a standalone ad hoc event. God had planned it from all of eternity. By definition, God is sovereign, directing all things freely according to his royal counsel. And this is in sharp contrast with the pagan gods of the first century and before who were understood to be often they were fickle or bound by an inscrutable and arbitrary fate but God's predestination gives his people tremendous comfort for they know that all who come to Christ do so through God's enabling grace and appointment by his decision alone by his sacrifice alone we are brought in and made family and his will is worked out we see it in prophet Isaiah says, remembering the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times things not done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose and this purpose to be experienced in the fullness of time is the uniting of all things in Christ Jesus those who first obtain the inheritance and those that also obtain the inheritance in Christ Jesus. And so history, redemptive and otherwise, works according to the counsel of his will. God wants you as his children, the one who lavished grace on you, who keeps giving you what you could never deserve. He spoils you in the best sense of the word. Because in Christ you are made his and our unity then, the shared identity is those in Christ. It actually preaches to the world that this is a good thing to be had. You see Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, praying to the Father before he ascends to the cross. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So our unity, the things that the world says should separate us are, are nothing compared to life in Christ and brought together. That's to reveal something glorious. It's to show the kingdom for what it is, this place of reconciliation for what we are meant for, for life of the garden invading our experience, bringing peace and purpose among us. And united with Christ in faith, united with others in him, the kingdom going forth, the garden growing, bringing God glory as we experience his good. It's the unity in Christ. But then we also gain sealing. And so I need to add more people. So I need somebody. Will you come and draw flowers? Just like bring the flowers from here and just start to in, invade the people. And like maybe put a flower in their hair. Like they used to, what's that song? If you're going to San Francisco. Nobody goes to San Francisco unless you're trying to rob a target. Um, what was I drawing? More people. These are more people. Give some hair. Give this one a mohawk. This one's got tattoos. What is it? What did you say? A flower tattoo. Do a flower. You got it. Yeah. Like, you're really intentional with that one flower. Like, lots. It's got to invade. Okay, but here now we're sealed. So we have unity now with each other, but then we're also keep doing lots of flowers, lots of colors. We're sealed, right? Not only were we predestined, and it's that truth that if you were in Christ, you then also responded to God's will. And you've been given the truth of the gospel that you were a sinner in need of saving. And Paul says, you believed in Jesus. And at that moment when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit that is promised by Jesus for all those that would believe in him. We see Jesus promising to the disciples in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because another sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And this is the promise of the Spirit for the disciples of Jesus, for those that follow him to have this comforter, this teacher in us. In John 16, talking about the arrival of the Spirit, Jesus will say, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit is yours. It is in you, in Christ. God's Spirit has been provided to you, as Paul says, as a down payment for what is to come. And by the Spirit's sealing, we are then kept until the fullness of time, experiencing the garden life even in desert places. 
Okay, what's that? One more flower. You get the sense of it, right? The garden come up, and it's, it's wild flowers. It's not weeds, you know? It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's what you don't expect. And again, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, and I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we're being kept. We're being sanctified in the truth. The very spirit of truth at work in us. There's a sealing that is happening. You can think of it as uh, like food packaging, right? We live in a day and age when all of our food comes sealed in packages that are meant to keep what is inside fresh right you get the sense of that and the spirit does this exact thing in us as we wait for jesus return it seals us it keeps out what is contaminating the world and our experience around us and the spirit certainly does amazing things still in our day and we're going to see more of what the spirit does as we continue to study ephesians but Here, his vital ministry is as a guarantee for us. The Spirit applying redemption until we arrive acquiring possession of our inheritance. So we, as God's treasured possession, taking hold of eternity. That's the third gift that we have in God's glory. And we've already drawn more people and more garden, but it's the fullness of time realized, union with Jesus experienced in the flesh, good like we could never imagine is to be ours in him. His glory as the warmth of the sun on our backs. And friends, it is worth the wait. And Paul told us in his letter to the Corinthian church, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's gloriously good what is to come. Kent Hughes, the scholar and pastor, says, Imagine the sublimest, most treasured experience of the Holy Spirit that we have ever had and then realize that those are only a foretaste of what is to come. The tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing that you were forgiven. Remember the time when in worship you were smitten with awe. Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used for the glory of Christ. Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruits of the Spirit surprising you with goodness where you once responded wickedly. Think of all of this and then multiply it a millionfold. That's the experience that is to come in eternity with Jesus because that's our inheritance that Paul speaks of. And it's exceedingly good. The third time, tapping into Jesus' 
high priestly prayer. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the punctuation of the doxology in Ephesians of all that we are given in Christ, the belonging, the rescue, the sanctification, the grace that we experience. It's all part of this inheritance that leads us to eternity with him. And why are we given such a torrential shower of blessings in verses 3 through 14? It's because God's chief purpose is for the praise of his name. Every blessing for us in Christ, planned by the Father and sealed by the Spirit, is meant to make much of our triune God because God is glorified in the extension of his grace towards us. Grace glorifies the giver of it. John Stott, the old uh, British pastor, says, Here then and now, or here are the how and the why of God's people who are also his heritage and his possession. How did we become his people? Answer according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he make us his people? Answer for the praise of the glory of his grace. Thus everything we have and are in Christ both comes from God and returns to God. It begins in his will and ends in his glory. For this is where everything begins and ends. God's glory equals our good. So the question that follows this song that Paul has written and sings over the church in Ephesus is whose glory will you live for? You're given a choice. You can live for your glory or you can live for God's glory. John Stott again says this all comes into violent collision with the man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world because fallen humanity is imprisoned in our own little egos and we have an almost boundless confidence in the power of our own will an almost insatiable appetite for the praise of our own glory but the people of god have at least begun to be turned inside out the new society of god's people has new values and new ideals for god's people are god's possession who live by god's will and for god's glory Grace is given, redemption is experienced, life is sweeter in God's glory. So it's just a call yet again for us to believe in Jesus, that his life, his death, and his resurrection was for you. The truth that God chose you, and because that is true, you can surrender to him, to his way, to his glory. And when the question comes, what is the most important thing about you? May our response be, I am in Christ to the praise of his glory. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you've done all these things for the praise of your glory. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of your glory glory you have uh, chosen us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless to the praise 
of your glory. You have predestined us for adoption to yourself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, you're bringing us to this fullness of time, this uniting of all things in heaven and on earth, in Christ, to the praise of your glory. But from the gift of your grace to us, of life in light of your glory, help us to live well in response that we would not only sing of it but that we would live lives that are different because of it that we have been chosen united sealed and set for eternity for your glory help us to know it to cherish it and to share it in jesus name amen We're going to share a meal with one another as we do each week.